You may, uh, not you may be dis uh, dismissed, but the junior church may be dismissed. Again, if you'd like to turn your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1, we're going to, this is a two-part series, we'll only get through part of this, uh, 9 to verse 20. Verses 9 to 20. After the intro, now John is going to give us a real good understanding of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the revealing. And the first part of that is done in a tremendous way in, in chapter 1, the second part of chapter 1. You know, when Jesus, before his death, told his disciples, John being one of them, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you understand that the world and its system is, hates you? <laughs> you know, as we go back to the, the book, again, it was written in the latter part of the first century, you kind of get a glimpse of the, the hatred that the world had for Christians. And again, the book of Revelation most likely was written right around 95, 96 A.D. Okay, so just a, a few decades, a few decades after uh, Paul, he's now gone. Uh, all the other disciples, we're going to see that in a moment, they are, they've been killed. And John is the only one left. And yet, what was the... Uh, what was the uh, the, the attitude towards Christians. Let me just write as one man wrote. By the end of the first century, Christianity had become a hated and despised religious sect in the Roman Empire. Writing to the Emperor Trajan, early in the second century, Pliny, the Roman governor of Bithynia, scorned Christianity as he, quote, as he quoted in his writing, a depraved and extravagant superstition. That's how he looked at uh, Christianity a depraved and extravagant superstition, end quote. Pliny went on to complain that uh, the infection, the contagion, the, the poison, the disease of this superstition, and again, he's referring to Christianity, has spread not only in the cities, but in the villages and rural districts as well. I mean, he looked at Christianity as a disease. That's pretty serious. You want to get rid of a disease. You want to get rid of an infection. The Roman historian Tacitus, a contemporary of Pliny, so again, writing at the same time, described Christians as, quote, a class hated for their abominations. And we're going to see what those abominations would be. While another contemporary of Pliny dismissed them as, quote, a, a set of, uh, a sect of men adhering to a novel and mischievous superstition. In other words, they're delusional. <laughs> it, People hated Christians. That's all there is to it. And obviously you know that because you remember the Colosseums, you remember the gladiators, you remember Nero lighting, uh, putting, uh, dipping uh, uh, Christians in uh, tar and lighting his uh, garden with their bodies. I mean, they... But again, apart from the natural hostility of fallen men to the truth of the gospel, I mean, that itself is a, an affront. Just, just the hostility of the gospel itself. The gospel is an affront, right? It's offensive. The gospel is offensive. It tells you that you're a sinner, 
that there's nothing that you can do about it and that God is going to condemn you. But Jesus Christ did what you could not do. And that is go to the cross and die in your place. That's very offensive to a self-righteous sinner. Give me something to do. Yeah, Jesus gets me 85%, but give me the 15%. No, gospel says there is no 15%. It's all grace, all grace. For by grace you've been saved. That's very offensive. So the gospel itself is offensive, but now the, the other things that the uh, Christians stood for was also hated. Let me give you some of these. Politically, the Romans viewed them as disloyal, that being Christians, because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as the supreme authority. And we've seen that. We'll see that in a moment again. Christians refused to say that the Caesar was the supreme one. That disloyalty was confirmed in the eyes of the Roman officials by Christians refusing to offer the required sacrifices of worship to the emperor. And then throwing the incense down, remember once a year, and repeating these words, Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't do it. Because Christians knew that Caesar wasn't Lord, Christ was. And because of that, politically, the Romans hated Christians. Also, many of their meetings were held privately at night, causing the Roman officials to accuse them of, hand, uh, of like hatching anti-government uh, you know, plots. They meet at night. What are they doing? What are they discussing? They're subver subversive. See, politically, the Romans hated the Christians. Religiously, Christians were denounced as atheists because they rejected the Roman pantheon of gods. Now, isn't that interesting? Romans looked at Christians as atheists. They didn't subscribe to the pantheon of gods, all the different gods that they had, all the images. See, they worshipped an invisible god, not an not a physical idol or image. <clears throat> Wild rumors based on misunderstanding of Christian beliefs and practices falsely accused them of other things. See, because they partook in the, the Lord's table, communion, the body and blood of Christ, they were accused of being cannibals. Because they called their common meal a love feast, like 1 Corinthians 11, Christians gathered, they thought, for orgies of lust and incest. This is how misunderstood they are. See, we think we're misunderstood. We're not nearly like the first century. And then finally, because Christianity at times did split families, Christians were considered anti-family. Well, let's just put those together. They were disloyal to the Caesar. They met at night, therefore probably subvert, you know, trying to subvert and trying to overthrow the government. They were called atheist cannibals, they had orgies of lust and incense and they're anti-family. They were misunderstood. They were hated. I'll give you some more. Socially, Christians, most of the, whom were from the lower class of society, you know, remember 1 Corinthians 1, the um, not many mighty, not many wealthy. Now, God normally calls the hurting, the poor, the despised, and again, because of that, they were despised by the Roman autocracy. Christian teaching that, that all people are equal, Galatians 3.28, threatened to undermine the actual hierarchy of the structure of the Roman government. Because again, there were millions and millions of slaves, and now all of a sudden the teaching of our Lord, the teaching of Paul, the teaching of the Bible is, we're all equal. What do you mean we're all equal? 
That means rich man, poor man, slave man, all equal in Christ. Yep. See, socially, so what, are you going to have a slave rebellion? Uh, what are you going to topple? What are you going to try to get rid of the rich? And you see that in the book of Philemon. Finally, Christians declined to participate in worldly amusements. Part of pagan society, which was part of the pagan society, and they avoided the festivals, the theater, all the other events, because they were immoral, ungodly, there was murder, there was... I mean, when you talk about theater back then, it, it was just a, a raunchy display. Oh, I guess kind of like we watch on TV now. You know what? See, they were called isolationists. Don't feel bad about your standard. You know, Christians need standards, and that is not legalism. Legalism is when you think your standard is making you acceptable before God. You need a standard. We need a high standard. What's unfortunate is Christians so often, they, we've seen this over, they're only about 20, 30 years behind the culture. Unfortunately, now I think we're catching up with that. It's almost like the culture goes one step down and then after a few years the Christian goes and their standard one step down. There needs to be a high standard. You know, if, if you're able to watch a movie and four-letter and Jesus Christ and God is blasphemed, and now you've got to be careful. You, you're being desensitized. I'm being desensitized. So they were called isolationists. Because they had a high standard. We need a high standard. Economically, Christians were seen as a threat by the numerous priests and craftsmen and merchants who profited from idol worship. Remember Acts 19? You know, you had the, uh, the it says they had a great commotion about the way. Demetrius, you know, he was the one that made the idols for Diana, and all of a sudden they didn't need the idols for Diana. And, Right here, you know, losing wealth. And therefore, economically, Christians were hated because they were, the uh, idol makers were, were, were losing business. One guy said it this way. This was a superstitious, superstitious age where many Romans feared that the neglect of their pagan gods would bring on natural disasters. The third century Christian apologist Tertullian Remarks sarcastically, this is what he said, this is what the historian, about 200 years later, this is how he said it. If the Tiber River reaches the walls, that's not good. And if the Nile does not rise to the fields, that's not good. If the sky doesn't move or the earth does, if, the if there is famine, if there is plague, plague, the cry is at once, quote, Christians to the lion. And he says this, what, all of them to one lion? I mean, in other words, every complaint in society basically was blamed on the Christian. You're the problem. Send them to the lion. See, that's where these Christians were living. That's why Revelation was written. It wasn't just for the prophetic. I mean, it was for the prophetic, but it was what the prophetic would do for the Christian right there. And so we read in verse... Um, 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the, uh, and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Why? Because these seven churches, which are a representation of all churches of all ages, they needed hope. 
They needed comfort. They needed their eyes set on the, the true king because the world was pressing, pressuring. They were, the, the world was, was uh, is hopeless. And when you live as a Christian in a hopeless world, especially a world that hates you, you need hope, you need comfort. That's why the book was written. They needed comfort. And now Christ is going to reveal himself to John. And he says, listen, I want you to write it down. <laughs> and what you see, write it in a book and send it. Make sure you get it to the churches. They need hope. They need comfort. They need strengthening. They need encouragement. That's why we're studying the book. Let's look at it. Look at, let's go back to verse 9. And we'll just break this up into five different pieces, at least these first three verses. The testimony of the apostle, I, John, that's his identification, I, John, both your brother and companion. <laughs> By the way, John is at this time old, probably about 90 years old, at the end of the first century. Um, wonder what happened to the rest of the apostles. Well, it's not written in scripture, all of them, only a couple we have an idea, but this is what history says, okay? Peter was crucified in Rome with his head down because he felt he was unworthy to die in the same manner as Christ, crucified upside down. Andrew was, had been crucified in, in Edessa. So we got a second guy crucified. James, the brother of John, had been killed in Acts 12. We see that actually in Scripture. Matthew had been beheaded in Ethiopia. Thomas had, had been thrust through with a spear in India. Simon the Zealot had been crucified in Britain. Thaddeus had been crucified in Edessa as well. Bartholomew had been beaten and crucified in India. Philip had been crucified at Herolopis. <laughs> you notice, you see a pattern here? <laughs> you see a pattern? When Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, that was serious. That wasn't like a, that wasn't theory. That was reality. You're going to follow me. You're going to have to take up your cross because you're going to die. In fact, you probably will die physically. Now again, he's saying take up your cross even in a spiritual sense. Philip again had been uh, crucified and James the Less had been clubbed to death in Jerusalem. And now John, 90-year-old, thereabouts man, has been, you're going to find he's been exiled to Patmos. And actually history says this, most likely he was released after the death of that particular emperor, Domitian, and was freed. And ultimately, this is what history says, that he was martyred by being cast into boiling oil. So perhaps he didn't even die on Patmos. We're not really sure, but that's what history says. Tradition. I, John. I mean, this is, I, John, again, the apostle, not John the Baptist. Someone asked me, is this John? The, no, no, the apostle. One walked with Christ. Uh, one of the sons of thunder, James and John. But notice how he refers to himself, your brother. I love that. He could have said the apostle. The one who walked with Jesus. Um, the beloved one. No, your brother. Uh, our feet are level at the foot of the cross, right? And I think that's why John says, your brother. He puts himself on the same level as his readers. You find that with many of the apostles. As they write, they'll just refer to themselves as a brother or to the brethren. Again, it's not wrong. I mean, you see in other parts where if he wants to be authoritative and he needs to get the point across, they will identify themselves as the apostle. 
But again, how do we view each other? I hope we view each other as brethren, right? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith and trust in him, we're brothers, sisters. We're all part of the same family. We've been brought in, not by our own effort, but because of what Christ has done for us. We're part of the family because of him. And so it's not on our effort. It's not because we deserve it. The more and more we get this in there, we got to get in our mind. We don't deserve this. That's grace. Grace means that we don't deserve what we have. We've been given a standing before God the Father, and I don't deserve it. I only have it because I, I have, have placed my trust in Christ. I'm in Christ. Same with you. So your brother and companion. Now the word companion is basically koinonia, fellowship, partnership, joint partnership. It's a uh, prefix with the word fellowship. And so I think this all, John, your brother, your companion and companion, it speaks of John's humility. It speaks of his humility because he's saying, listen, this is who I am, John, part of the family, companion, co-laborer, fellowship, common life. I'm just here because the Lord chose me. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm writing. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of what he's done. Really, that just shows a lot of humility. That's his identification. But now he moves on to this fellowship. We start to understand a little bit more. It's his suffering. Look at the second part. This fellowship led to his suffering. Because it says the companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. One uh, commentator said this of those three words. Tribulation, kingdom, patience. He says they are governed by one article in the Greek. You kind of miss it unless you really were looking. There's just one article, which means they, they work together. All three are, are forming one unit, uh, one common thought. And really, when it comes to uh, John's suffering and the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, think about how those three things work together. See, he's under tribulation. That word tribulation means a pressure, a pressing, which refers to affliction and oppression. You ever feel pressure? Now, you can have pressure in a lot of areas. You can have pressure financially. You can have pressure uh, as far as in relationships. You can have pressure when it comes to your health. Um, But here, the pressure is related to the fact that he's walking with Jesus. There's an oppression. Now again, he's on an exile. He's exiled to an island of Patmos. So he's saying, I'm, "I'm I'm in the tribulation, not the tribulation, but in other words, I'm in tribulation." He's being persecuted, not because he was ugly, not because he came from the wrong town. He was being persecuted because of his faith in Christ, his walk in Christ. You know, that's why I say, (coughs) when Jesus says to the disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross, what? And follow me. And the reason you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross is because you are following me. When you follow me, it's going to be hard. We've got to say this. We've got to get prepared. One of the the things, by the way, thank you so much for uh, the input on those SWAT surveys. You know, those strength, weakness, opportunity, threats. Uh, we've taken them, we've synthesized them down, we've made them so we can put uh, value towards each statement, 
And actually tomorrow the deacons and elders are now looking and going to give direction as far as we're going to be, uh, uh, they're filling out, by the way, deacons, elders, if you haven't filled out your SWAT thing, make sure it's on my desk today if you would, because we're going to accumulate all the results and that will help us give direction for our church that we you know, work together as a body. But one of the things on the SWAT survey was uh, one of the threats, and this, they weren't saying it wasn't happening, they were just saying you better make sure it does happen, is to prepare for persecution. And I thought, you know what? You know, you mean if we're in Britain, we should prepare for persecution? How about France? How about in China? How about in uh, Thailand? How about in, uh, you know, Vietnam? South Korea? No, no, we're talking about America. As we stand for Christ, I believe tribulation, right? Pressure. Pressure to capitulate. But again, he was under pressure because he was being sent to a basically a penal colony. When Domitian, see, whereas Nero liked to kill people, Domitian didn't, he wasn't, he killed Christians. But what he also did is he just got rid of whole sections just by uh, transporting them from mainland and they'll just drop them on an island. Let them die there. Well, here, this wasn't just Christians, though. This was, this was for, Patmos was for criminals. So, you know, you stole something, you murdered, you just got transported to this island. It was just uh, 20, 30 miles off of Miletus. And basically, you just, uh, they had mines that they were working, literally ore mines. But basically, you had to fend for yourself. And through that, there was a lot of attrition. A lot of people died. This is the persecution right now and tribulation. But notice the second word. There's a, there's a, I think a, a, these connect to each other. They're like one unit. The tribulation and kingdom. Here, kingdom, he's talking about he's, that he's part of Christ's kingdom, that he's saved, that he's part of the redeemed community, that the, the kingdom is, is uh, being led by the king, Jesus Christ. See, in other words, the tribulation is because I'm part of the kingdom and kingdom. And then finally, and patience of Jesus Christ. The word patience there is, uh, New American says perseverance, I believe. It, it, it literally means to remain under, patiently enduring the difficulties, and this is the key, without giving up. So, tribulation, kingdom, patience. He's in tribulation because he's part of the kingdom but he needs to endure patiently. Patience means to continue down the path, quote, without giving up. In other words, it's pointing to the fact that we're not sprinters. We are marathoners. And God gives us situations in our life that we could endure very easily if it was just this amount of time. But some of these situations might literally be this for you. From the point of start to the day you die. Right? And some of this is because, not, not a health situation, you know, I'm saying something that because you are a Christian and you are naming the name of Christ and you are representing him, there is hardship in your life and, that, and what he's encouraging them and he's saying of himself that I'm going to endure to the end without giving up. Sometimes we give up because of the hardship of following Christ. I mean, you see that all over the place. The hardship may not be that somebody wants to kill you. It might be just simply somebody wants to make fun of you. Just don't say anything about Jesus. Don't go to work and say anything about Christ. We've heard enough. 
You know, sometimes that perseverance, though, is even something as simple as just being consistent with God. You know, like just getting into the book, just getting into the Bible, just finding that, you know, you need to feast on on the Word of God and there's a, a lack of perseverance. We have a tendency to give up. Or, you know, do you remember back in November? No, I guess September now. And we had missions conference, and we talked about our missionaries, and we had the mission prayer board, and we all signed up, Some of, at least most of us signed up, to pray for our missionary daily. You remember that? And what happens? Now it's January. Who was that that I even signed up for? We, we, we're, we so often are not persevering. I, I trust that if you're there, you need to confess that. And Lord, who was that that I said that I was going to pray for? And Lord, help me be consistent, right? Amen? Should we do that? Should we be truthful people? Should we make a commitment and hold to our commitment? So, again, this patience, this remaining under. Now, again, he's talking about persecution, but I think we should remain under and patiently endure without giving up in all our disciplines of life. So that's his suffering. And then thirdly, his location. He was on the island of Patmos. His location. Again, Patmos was a small island. Did you have this? Did you have the... No, no, go. I had these little pictures for you. Maybe next week. Hey, at least we have a... You know, at least we... Uh, Patmos was a small island. It was rocky. It had a forbidding terrain. It was about 37 miles west of Miletus. Now, the only reason I say that is if you think of... I'm going to draw it out with my hand. If you think of this, and here's Israel, and this is the Mediterranean, and you go up near Turkey, and there's Miletus and where the seven churches are. Uh, Patmos is to the west, going towards Italy, by about 40 miles. So Miletus is the mainland, and then um, Patmos is this island out in about 37... You know, it's like, a, it's like an Alcatraz. Right? You know, you get the person out there. I mean, they're not going to swim back. 37 miles, you know, with all the other things that would like to eat you. <laughs> um, so you're out there in the Aegean Sea. Uh, early church fathers call, uh, such as Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius state that John was sent to the island as an exile under, again, the rule of Dominician. Now, that's real important because it wasn't under the rule of Nero. For one thing, Nero killed people. That just the way, and, and also what the the book is presenting, it makes more sense that it was during the when John was about ninety, not when he was sixty. By the way, that plays in huge how you translate the book, not translate, interpret the book, interpret. Because if it was back before seventy A.D., that's where I was saying a couple weeks ago. Some people look at the Book of Revelation and say that really it's not prophecy. It was literally at this point, it's just history. It's just telling you about the destruction of Jerusalem seventy A.D. by the Romans. But again, as you as you study the book and even why he was exiled, it most likely was under the Emperor Domitian. Again, A.D. right around A.D. ninety-five. So he's preaching Christ. He's actually around the seven churches as a pastor. He gets arrested and he's sent to the island. Basically, you have to survive on your own. Many sources or a number of sources that I named say that when he's out there, 
you know, he's not like, you know, you think of an island. I was like, what is he doing, man? Like, you know, drinking lemonade on the beach. No, no, survival, you know, just survival. And most likely, he also had to work in the mines. Now think about that. An 85 to 90-year-old man working in the mines. And so it's very, very difficult. Many of these men, by the way, all they had to do was renounce Jesus. <laughs> renounce Christ never speak of him again, throw the incense to Caesar, and you will be released from this island and sent back for a normal life. That's all you have to do. I had one of my boys this last week, we were talking, and um, he was saying how he's listening to uh, John MacArthur's sermons. That warms my heart. Uh, <laughs> you know, I tell you, you know one of the great, you know, you talk about technology and how it can be negative. I tell you, one of the best thing, technologies there is is you know these iPods and these smartphones that you can like download like gigabyte of sermons and then just take them with you. Isn't that a great blessing? But anyways, he was just saying I could tell that a light went on because he was like he was saying you know like all these people had to do was just renounce Jesus. Like it just like like that's all they had to do is just say you know I'm not going to follow Jesus and they're like. And it just was like, wow, you know. I mean, what we say and how we stand is the critical thing, right? Do people know we're Christians? Do we stand for the, the, the standard and the truth of Jesus Christ? He stood and he's on the island. And he says it. Because, notice the fourth part, his allegiance, his loyalty, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He gives us the reason why he's on the island. If he didn't give us the reason, there might be some that says, well, he must have been a thief. See, the island was made for, or was, was given over for criminals. He wants to be very clear, this is why I'm here. It's because I am loyal to the word of God and loyal, I, I have allegiance to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he was there. He wasn't an evildoer. He was, he was there because of his, what? Faithfulness. He was faithful. When you're faithful to Jesus Christ, the world hates you. <laughs> the world tells you, stop speaking. Now, some of us will stop speaking at that point. Well, you know, all they want me to do is stop speaking. You know, they, they, they're my friends. They just don't want me to keep saying anything. Wait, that's the whole point. The whole point is that we are truth bearers. You know, we're light in this world. Now again, for them, it just had to do with once a year showing up at a specific spot, taking a pinch of incense, throwing it into the fire, and pledging allegiance, as it were, to the emperor. Caesar is Lord. Good to go. In fact, they didn't even care if you worshipped other... They, you could worship the, the true God, but make sure you put me first. That's what Caesar would say. But he was loyal. And because of what the Word of God said and the testimony of Christ, because Jesus Christ is God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Christ is God, and Christ is Master, and the Word of God is truth, he stood on that and persecution came to him. You know, it's true that in whatever, in whatever society, whatever generation we live, the, the whole issue of allegiance... The whole issue of allegiance will be tested. Are we truly loyal to Jesus Christ? 
Is he really our master? Uh, Matthew 6 says, no man can serve two masters. It's either him or something else. No man can serve two masters. And so are we truly loyal to Jesus Christ? I, I was going to um, show this person. I, you don't have the picture either, right? This thing keeps falling off. Um, it's a young lady with two children. She's probably 30 plus. The young girl is probably 10 and the boy is probably 6. And it says she smiles at the future, like Proverbs 31. She's, a, she's from Columbia. And it's, this is the header. This is the Voice of Martyrs. I tell you, I keep telling you, get the magazine. It's free. It's worth reading because it really just keeps us in uh, proper perspective of where we are, right? But this is what it says under there. It says, in 2007, the FARC guerrillas, F-A-R-C guerrillas, which is from Columbia, killed Luz's husband, a pastor, and cut his body into 30 pieces. Today, she's standing strong with the support of her Christian family. She's standing strong with other believers, but her husband left her a widow and her children with no father. And yet she's standing strong. She's standing strong. She's standing strong for the testimony of Jesus Christ and for the word of God, just like John. I like how Martin Luther put it. He said this, and he's talking about how the where the, the fight should be in each one of our lives. Like, if we're looked upon as like soldiers, where do, we need, where do we need to be fighting the battle? And basically, Luther says this, wherever the war at that moment is raging, he says this, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment <coughs> attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may pre be professing Christ. So, in other words, oh, let me just finish. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point, end quote. And I think of... Um, Oh, what is it? Uh, Civil War. And the idea is this. The Civil War and the, and the soldiers were here. But if the Union soldiers went over, I'm saying, I think I'm saying this right, uh, to Little Round Point. Is that correct, Steve? All right, is it the reverse of that? Little Round Point. top, yeah, okay. What did, what did you expect the uh, soldiers to do that were over here? Guard the point where the where the enemy was attacking. By the way, we don't want to call the northern the, the enemy here. But but the point is, you go where the, the the fight is. That's the whole point. You go where the fight is. Sometimes we get real bold where the fight isn't. You know, in Sunday morning church, we're all pretty much on the same page. We can preach truth, teach truth, amen to truth. But you know what? It's when I'm home and I'm speaking to one of my siblings and they bring up something that is a little off spiritually. Do I, do I take the battle there? Do I fight the fight right there? And I don't mean fight in the wrong sense. I mean in a gracious, gentle way, point out truth. See, we have to fight the battle where the, where the battle at the moment is raging. You don't want to flinch. And so, whereas... John could have just said, you know, I'm not going to throw the incense. No, he was faithful and he's on the island. And finally, his commission. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. 
I was in the Spirit. Again, the Spirit of God working in his heart, giving him not only illumination, but inspiration. I mean, this is revelation here. We, we don't get this. I do not believe that we get new revelation as of today. I think the book has been closed. You see that at the end of Revelation 22. But what he's saying is, what I'm receiving is not of my own. It's from the Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And I won't go into Lord's Day. I think that was Sunday. But it could have some other interpretations. By the way, the issue of, of the Lord's Day is not the issue of the text. The issue is who's speaking. I am the, verse 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book. Send it to the seven churches. This is what's important. It's God doing this in, in John's life. John is getting revelation from, from God himself. And that's his commission. That's what he's been told to do. Let's, let's finish up, and again, I'm not going to get through it all, but the vision of our Lord. Now, now we go from the Apostle John. Let's just get a few verses into as far as the vision of the Lord. i got just a couple minutes. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And we find out in verse 13, He was one like the Son of Man. L look at verse 12, the second part of verse 12. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, that, that uh, phrase, son of man, is, uh, was a very, it was a favorite uh, way of Christ referring to himself. If you go through the, the Gospels, I think it's 83 times he's referred to as the son of man. Son of man. Now, he could be referred to as the son of God, but the son of man, the son of man. And again, this title emphasizes Christ's humanity and the fact that he is the Messiah, it's used over and over again. Now, in Revelation, it's only used twice, but in the New Testament, like 83 times. One time, it refers to man in Hebrews. What is this, the son of man? But, but overwhelmingly, it's always referring to Christ. In fact, we even see this, this title found in uh, Daniel chapter 7, the son of man. This is who's speaking. This is the one that's being referenced. This is, this is Christ in his church, and you see that because it says in verse, uh, the end, that he's in the midst of the lampstands, okay? And I turned and I saw seven lampstands, and one in the midst of the seven lampstands, verse 13. So this is Christ's presence in the church. Now again, think about this. Think about They're being persecuted. They're being, they're being uh, tracked down. They're being killed. They're being murdered. They're being brutalized. They need hope. John gets a vision, the, the one like the Son of Man, the one that came from heaven to earth, the one who took on humanity, the one who suffered and then finally ultimately died for them. That's the one he sees. And then notice the seven gold, he's, he's walking among the seven golden lampstands, which verse 20 of this chapter says, which are the seven churches. So he's walking among the churches. That's what I mean. Christ's presence is in his, in his church. He's, he's with us. He's with us today, 2015. He's walking among his churches. He's watching what we do. He seeks to comfort and, 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 and encourage and empower. And, and, and think about the, the, the lampstand there. Uh, lamps were used for what? Lighting a dark room. Churches are in this uh, world to, to give it light. Not to save it. To, to point the way where salvation is found, and that's Christ. 
fact, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 says, We are children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among who you shine as lights in the world. Are you shining as a light? I don't know where you work, where, who your family is. I mean, are you shining as a light? Because that's really why Paul, or John is in Patmos, right? He, for the testimony of Christ... For the word of God, he was a light. We need to be lights. Jesus in Matthew 6 says, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. Let your light shine. So these were lampstands, but not only lampstands, they were golden lampstands. Gold was the most precious metal back then. It was the most beautiful. It was the most valuable entity on earth. And in Acts 20, verse 28, it says, tells elders to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Man, that's why they're golden, because the church was purchased with the blood of Christ. We've been purchased. In fact, 1 Peter 1.18 says this, with the, we've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. <laughs> but then it says not only golden lamps stands, but seven and I believe the seven means complete. In other words, he's writing to seven churches that shows completeness. The things that he's going to say in these seven churches can be said of other churches throughout history, the church history. But what's being said is important because it's complete. It's a complete message to a church. In fact, I think we're going to find ourselves in these seven churches. And what, how Christ counsels is important because he is counseling and he's the wonderful counselor. He's going to give us understanding of what we need to do next. Whether it's a commendation or a correction, he's going to tell us. So it's seven golden lampstands. Again, these are actual churches in real places, but are symbolic of all kinds of churches that exist throughout all of church history. And here's Christ in the midst of his church. By the way, you would expect to find him in the midst of his church. Remember in Matthew 28, before he left this earth, told his disciples, he said this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Always. You find yourself running to Christ because he's always with us. I mean, he's telling the disciples that just before he says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I'm always with you. In fact, over in Hebrews 13.5, he says this, He who promised, I will never leave you, what? Nor? That word forsake means to abandon. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to abandon you. So this is Christ overseeing and guiding and comforting his church. And then finally, we see Christ interceding for his church. Interceding. Verse 13, he's clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. And by the way, that, those words garment and the golden band, or the New American says sash, that is, that is representative, that is showing Christ as the high priest. He's not only present in his church, but he's the high priest of his church. And if you just take a quick run over to Hebrews, let me just close with this. It says that Christ is the high priest. Now, that, like you almost want to bask in these truths. For a self-righteous sinner who wants to try to earn his way, these truths smash and say, you can't do it. But Christ did it. It says in Hebrews 9, 
not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most high place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Chapter 9, verse 26. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Verse chapter 10. This man, after he had offered, he had offered on, uh, one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So here the Lord is, is pictured in the, in the robe, in the sash, as the high priest, the one who sacrificed himself for them. And what he wants John to remind them is, I'm your high priest. I'm the one that has brought you into God's family. I'm the one that's interceding for you. I'm the one that's caring for you. I'm the one that is securing you. I am the one that has made it that as you have received salvation, it is eternal. So again, this is Christ as the great high priest interceding, forgiving, protecting, caring for his church, giving hope to his church. They're being hunted down like animals. They are being killed like criminals. They're being sent off to the island to die. And he, he says, John, I want you to write this down and I want you to send it to them. Why? Because I want them to have hope. In a world that's hopeless, in a world that's crumbling, in a world that hates you, in a world that wants to destroy you, remember, I'm your high priest. And part of the high priest was this, taking people before God. And it talks about it in, that he is forever interceding on our behalf. And doesn't it just like warm your heart? Lord, you're in the midst, your presence, but you're also interceding as my high priest. And the sacrifice you gave was once for all and you sat down. So now I can enjoy my walk with you because I'm not trying to strive to please the Father through my own righteousness. That's already been settled. I'm in Christ. I'm pleasing to the Father. But now I can, I can find uh, joy and I can find comfort and hope and, and really worship. Being able to, in other words, right now, why don't you stand? We're going to worship Christ. I would hope that this goes through your mind. And you know what? I'm not worshiping you to to make myself acceptable to you. I'm worshiping you because I'm already accepted in the beloved. It is purely everything you have done. Thank you, Lord. I trust we worship effectively.